for joining me on YRF Your Real Frequency Podcast. I'm honored you're spending this time with me and my guest. Please find me on Instagram at Your Real Frequency and uh, like and subscribe. Share this podcast with as many people as you can, please. Uh, let's get the word out. I'm humbled by the response I've gotten from YRF's first two episodes. A lot of text and email letting me know how impactful my guest's stories are. That's really the foundation and the reason why we do this. My guest today has a remarkable story. It's of loss at the hands of a murderer, and then his ultimate struggle to find forgiveness. Dr. Ryan Turcotte is a professor at the School of Sport and Athletic Administration and Education at Gonzaga University. Um, it's important to know that he has never shared this story publicly, and uh, he's ready to share it now, but he, but he gets it. He gets that having trust in his truth will help others. I will warn you, uh, there is some graphic content we cover in this episode, so fair warning, please. Let's all take a listen to Ryan Turcotte. Four years old, my parents divorced. My mom and dad kept a really great relationship. Uh, my mom moved to a different city out of Great Falls, Montana. She started dating someone. This guy was the superintendent of schools in Butte, Montana. I kind of noticed some some things with this guy early on. I was pretty young. I was eight or nine when I first met him. I noticed, you know, some some issues with him in terms of just temperament and demeanor. He had a son who was close to my age, and th this guy was really hard on his son. So that mm. was another difficult situation for me to kind of assess how to deal with that. This guy is now dating my mom. He has a son. So now I'm in a situation where I almost have like a stepbrother and he's hard on him and, and kind of starting to treat me a little bit like that. I think a lot of people can relate to that when it comes to uh, divorced parents and then a third party comes in and you know, what's their dynamic? How are they going to adjust and inflict their parenting style on a new kid that's not their son? I right. Mean, how difficult is that for for anybody, really. Right. But especially especially a child, too. Right. You know, the behavior got worse, right? It's especially mm. as, as my mom started to see these things. And when she wanted to separate from him when I was about 14, he became very aggressive and he became obsessed and he started stalking her. Hmm. He would show up at grocery stores out of nowhere. He would be hanging out outside of my mom's apartment, also in Butte, where she was teaching. He would show up at my youth sports games. If I was a eighth grader and ninth grader, he would just show up trying to see my mom. So that was that was tough. Also, being so young and not understanding what's going on, and concerned about my mom's safety, and just seeing how uncomfortable and difficult it was for her with that. He also he threatened her at gunpoint, and my mom told me about that when I was about thirteen or fourteen. Um, he had a, a gun, and he just kind of sat uh, in a room, and he kind of th obviously threatening her. Uh, he physically abused her. This led up to September 25th, 1999, when I was a freshman in high school, my first my first month of high school. My mom was at a football game at the University of Montana, playing in Missoula. Uh, this guy went to, he drove from Butte, he went to Missoula. He saw my mom there. He was still stalking her. I don't know, I don't know how he knew she was there. He drove back to Butte. He got his, his guns, I think, or wh whatever he did back in Butte, which is a two hour drive between Butte and Missoula. Mm -hmm. 
And then he drove back to Missoula. He knew where my mom was somehow. And my mom was with a friend, a teacher, another teacher in Butte. And they, they were, they were staying at a small house in, in Missoula. Um, he came in and, uh, I guess he broke in the house and he uh, killed my mom and then he killed this, the, her friend hmm. and then he killed himself. So, uh, that was pretty heavy. Jesus. And, um, so yeah, I didn't find out until the next day. Hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, the next day, uh, I was, I, I went to church with my dad and, um, I just, uh, Yeah, I just, I was. Take your time. Um, I just, I, I remember going upstairs and I was playing a video game and my aunt was visiting. My mom's sister was visiting from Virginia. When we came home, she had this just like a, her face was just ghost white. And she told me to go upstairs. Uh, my dad is my role model. He's, he's my idol pretty stoic guy. He doesn't really get emotional. So he came upstairs and he, uh, was sobbing. I've n- never seen my dad cry before. And, uh, he came and, and grabbed me and hugged me and I knew something really bad had happened. I didn't know what, and he just, you know, he said, your, your mom, it's your mom. She died last night. I remember I was just frozen and I didn't really know what happened. I thought it maybe it was a traffic. It was, she got in a wreck. Hmm. I was, I remember kind of being frozen, but I asked, you know, as he was hugging me, I said, well, so what happened? And he said that Tim killed her. Tim killed her last night. I, I couldn't even get a breath. Like you were so shocked. You, you just don't think those things are going to happen to you. You know, you hear about it, you maybe read about it, but you never think it'll happen to you. And it, it was just so real to me because it was coming from my dad and I knew it, it, it was real. It was just like a state of shock. You're just and you know, you're 15 years old and, and you know, that's your mother. And it's, it's just, it's just so hard to process. At 15 though, 1999, we didn't have the coverage that we do now. We hear about this so much more. I think, um, I think my kids are more aware of the possibility of another adult inflicting extreme trauma or, or death upon another adult. I think that that wouldn't be I don't want to say it wouldn't be such a shock, but then um, the coverage of this wasn't so widespread. So you had to conceptualize that these adults are capable of doing this to each other. Yes. Not only just not on TV and in, in, a, in a drama or in a movie, right. but in real life. Right. And that all came to the realization in one day on the 26th of September, the day after. Yeah. And, um, and then on top of that, realizing that your, your mother was gone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I mean, just as you said, it was, it was a lot to process. Uh, so, you know, I guess the days after that kind of roll forward, you know, I didn't go to school for a while. I had a lot of friends come and visit me and it was just really hard to know what to do or how to act. You know, everyone was so sorry and condolences. And I was with my brother and sister, they were older siblings. And those two are also my idols because I think it obviously impacted them maybe even more so than me because they were older and they, experience more of this guy. They kind of knew maybe some more things that were going on than me. Cause they were, you know, my sister was around 20 and my brother was around 25. It hit them a little harder, I'm sure, but they were just amazing with how they really protected me and looked after me and made sure that I was okay. And even throughout my life, they've, they've been amazing siblings to just look out for me. And uh, I'm just really lucky that they are so 
resilient and giving and unselfish to where they, they're obviously going through an immense amount of pain, but they're also concerned about their younger siblings. So. Right. They're dealing with their own mourning and trying to piece the piece everything together. And then on top of that, protect you. Right. Right. So yeah. And then it goes to, you know, my mom's funeral um, in Butte, Montana, where she was a teacher. That was just really, that was maybe the hardest moment ever. It's just, you know, her, her students, her all of her students that she'd been teaching in the state for the past 10 years, her teaching colleagues, our family friends are all kind of coming up to the front row of the church, basically just bawling in front of us and, and hugging us and telling us they're very sorry. Hmm. I just remember just nonstop crying and unconsolable and, and I didn't know what to do or how to act or there's no really blueprint or template for how to get through this. And it's just like pain and, and sorrow and confusion and you, you still kind of don't think it's real. And But, you know, there was, there was, over a thousand people at this church. I mean, there were people outside of the church. Um, she it just kind of shows the impact she had um, with with everybody in the state um, in terms wow. of her teaching and her outreach. It was it was really powerful, but also it's it just as a you know being fifteen again. It was just really hard to kind of process and wow. you know kind of take all that in. Recently, with the Kobe Bryant death, hmm. a lot of these feelings kind of came back to me a little bit, and I'm not sure why that is, but a lot of the shock and the trauma. I didn't know Kobe personally. Um, you know, sports has been a big part of my life, and I think Kobe impacted a lot of people inside and outside of sports. When I heard the news, and even kind of talking with you about it, just just that gut punch, you know, right. just the, the the sorrow and shock, and the, you think about family and, and his his children and his wife. You kind of hear all these stories about you know the last time people saw Kobe, the last time they right, you know, and you kind of hear all these stories kind of coming out in the media. Sure. And so for me, it kind of made me think of the last time I saw my mom. It was about a week before she died and she was in Helena where I was living with my dad and she took me out. She would always come and, and spend you know really good time with me, always taking me to sporting events. But uh, she dropped me off in, in my house, my dad's house. And she, uh, she, She, uh, you know, I, I gave her a, a big hug, um, and sorry. You're all right, man. I gave her a hug, and it was at a moment where I was getting strong. I was 15, and I was playing sports, and I was just getting to be a little bit taller than her, mm. and I was getting strong. And she was just really proud of me. But for some reason, I, I gave her a hug, and I, I picked her up. And she was like laughing and uh, it was, it was just like a really beautiful moment mm. and we were both kind of laughing. We just had a really special moment and she drove off and I just remember her car kind of driving off. And for some reason I kind of stood in the driveway and just kind of watched her drive away. And it, I've never really done that before, but it was, it was just like a special moment where I was just like, man, I, I really love this woman. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just so lucky to have her as, as a mother. I don't know why I stopped and reflected when she did that. Wow. Powerful. It's really powerful. And it's just a moment I won't, I'll never forget and I'll cherish forever. Excuse me. Yeah. So, you know, and even before that, we went to a, we went to a movie called, uh, life is beautiful and it was a big movie in the nineties and it was about the Holocaust. It's uh, about a family in Italy and how a, a father, um, his family gets pushed into a concentration camp and he voluntarily goes into the camp because he knows his kids were in there and his, his wife basically 
you know, hides his kid. He, he finds his son and then he hides his kid in the camp from the, the Nazis. And he makes it fun for him and he plays games and he, his kid is so young, he doesn't understand the, the Holocaust and, and the concentration camps that he, he tries to make it a game for his son. And he's also trying to keep tabs on his wife and what's happening to his wife. Mm. And he ends up getting killed in the camp. And the kid survives at the end and basically because of the kid's father. I remember my mom kind of crying and she, I mean, she was really touched by it. And so was I, even as a, a young teenage punk, you know, <laughs> uh, I, it still kind of struck a chord with me, but you know, we just kind of just talked about just family and, and how inspiring that was and the sacrifices kind of looking back. I really feel like my mom kind of sacrificed herself for me a little bit. Hmm. Uh, I think that this guy could have hurt me. I think he, if I would have been there, he probably would have done the same thing to me and my brother and sister. So, Oh, sure. You know, um, everybody in their, in his path. Yeah. He was just, he was just so destructive. Um, at that, at that moment, just that moment of the movie and then saying goodbye to her is, is just, I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm almost making it up, but it was, <laughs> it was you know, you always want another moment. You always want another time. You want sure. one more interaction. You want one more day, but I mean, you couldn't really write a better script for how our last day was together. Our last day. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not a big um, fate guy. And predestined futures, that almost sounded very picturesque in a way that it's going to help you move on and, and um, get past the tragedy that's about to come. Right. That's As right. if it was meant to happen. Right. You're right. Hmm. You know, the, the Kobe thing kind of brought me back to that. That struck it. That struck so many people. Yeah. I was, I mean, I'm not surprised, I guess, but, um, we were all so, uh, taken aback and came such out of left field. Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Almost like when you had found out of, about your mom in the manner in which it had happened, like it just doesn't make any sense. How, how do we, how can we rationalize this as human beings? We talked about this off mic and how we tend to do that as humans, we, we want, we need to make sense of things. So I think that there's a, there's a sense of safety and security that we hold in, in that once we have some answers, but there's no fucking answers. Right. 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 It, what, what's the point of this whole thing? Yes. If that's how it all can end and it all, it, it can all be taken away in a moment's notice by a helicopter crash or at the hands of some psycho. Right. So we, I think we have to grab all the pieces we can and formulate our own situation and, and answer so we can move on and feel like, okay, there, that's a one-off or there's a purpose for what I'm doing and this certainly couldn't happen to me or my family. Right. Where in, in a sense, um, we're, we're, not, we're not immune to any of this stuff. Right. right. Now you're left with picking up the pieces. Yes. You're a 15-year-old boy. Man, what's the next step for you? Yeah, so uh, after the funeral and after just kind of grieving for a, a week, week and a half or two weeks, you know, I had to go back to school, try to just get back to normal routines, just take my mind off it. So my first day back at school was crazy. Um, hmm. It was statewide news. It was all over the newspaper. It was it was the news at night. So everybody knew. So I remember coming back the first day of high school and walking down the hallway with one of my buddies. And I mean, I'm in a school of probably 3,000 people in Helena. And basically, the, the whole hallway went quiet. And I just, oh, God. <laughs> you Great. know, and so that 
now I'm like, okay, well now I have this to deal with. Like what, you know, now I feel like an outcast and everyone doesn't know what to do around me. And that was kind of how it was for the next couple of years. It was kind of people didn't really know how to talk to me about it or address it or help me. I don't know if I had the brain to even process it. I don't think I even really came to terms with it or accepted it. I think what I tried to do is almost ignore it. For the next 15 years, I I started to just bury it. And I'm like, okay, I need to hide this. Like, this is too hard for people. This is too hard for me. So I need to hide this. I'd also like to ask everybody to take some time and find me on Instagram at Your Real Frequency. Enter yourself in to win a free hat simply by following. If you tag somebody or link somebody, um, then your chances increase by two. If you don't win the hat, you can certainly go to my website at yrfco.com and my benefit store and buy one there. Support this podcast. And, and of course, your support is much appreciated. Thank you, everybody. And let's get back to Ryan Turcott. So, yeah, I guess because I was so young, I really didn't get to grieve and I didn't know how to grieve. I just had no concept of that. And I just had to keep kind of living life, going through school, pretending like everything was okay. But but there's people around you and counselors and teachers that knew what was going on. Right. Did they know how to react to a situation like this? I don't think so. I don't think they were trained. I think they thought it's best not to discuss it. I don't know. Right. I, I'm actually kind of mind boggled why someone didn't help me more. You know? <laughs> Take you under their way. Yeah. I mean, you hear about that, you know, a family gets sick or they have some trauma that they're dealing with and, and their closest friends tend to recoil right. and to retract because they don't know what to do. And I think I'm guilty of that in my past with, with people. So I'm like, oh, they don't need, they don't need my extra questions or me asking if I can do anything because then it places a responsibility on them for them to find something and ask me to do something instead of me just taking charge and doing it. Seeing a kid out of whack, out of sorts with this unspeakable tragedy that he has to live with. What do you do? Yeah. Right. (laughs) In the moment. Right. It's still coming to terms of like, wow, that shit just really happened. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with that, I think I developed some anxiety. There was some potential for depression. I don't think it hit me. It didn't hit me at that moment because I was, again, so young and I don't think I was mature enough to even really fully understand. You know, a lot of my focus was like feeling like an outcast and feeling like socially awkward. And at that age, your peers are so big and, you know, like it's, yeah. it's almost, it sounds crazy, but I was almost more concerned about that than the actual event. It was, which sounds really selfish, but no. I was... I was like, I was just like about my friends and peers. And it's just like, I I can't relate to anyone. How is anyone going to want to be friends with me? Like, so that was kind of my high school experience of, of just not talking about it, trying to hide from it. You know, I really used sports as a way to just completely escape from it. Mm. You know, I played basketball, football and track, especially that my freshman year, I just, I really tried to use sports to just completely get away from it, which I think it did do that. I don't think it alleviated any of the pain. You know, I think it allowed me to hide, but it, I wasn't dealing with any of the pain. I was developing some habits to where I was really hiding it really well, mm. you know, and even though people knew about it, I just... I wouldn't talk about it. I just buried it. That sports is so pivotal and, and probably your saving grace, I assume, Mm -hmm. because you have that team atmosphere and you you can't think of anything else when you're 
in a game. Right. 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 Just even the sports that I do as a 41 year old dude, um, I water ski, slow water ski, and then I snow ski. And when I'm doing that, there is nothing that can penetrate my brain as far as work or family. I'm singularly focused on that activity. It's why I'm so addicted to them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Okay, Me too, good. Yeah. yeah. Better to be addicted to that than, than other things that I have been in the past. And, right. And so I'm obsessive because I know I can use that as an escape. It doesn't make my problems go away, but it certainly makes me feel good for the time being that I'm doing them. Right. So I can imagine how that is as a teenager too. Yeah. And the connectivity that you're so searching for with your buddies. Yes. And, and now you have something that's in common and you don't have to, like there's no awkward silence where you have to talk about your past. It's right. talk about the game. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that, that was a great, just an escape, a distraction. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it really started with that and kind of that connection I had with it as an escape from all that pain. Yeah, I, I had a good high school career. I, I was pretty successful at sports. We won the state championship in football. I had a really big game in the cha- state championship on TV. Um, nice. I remember just thinking of my mom the whole time. I scored like the game tying touchdown and I pointed up to the sky and I had kind of an emotional moment where I felt like she was kind of with me. I was a relatively good athlete in high school, but I also was get, kind of getting too obsessed with sports and I was developing an identity that was too revolved around sports and where it was really kind of feeding my ego. I started to kind of just feel superior to people, which I think wasn't really healthy. And then this really kind of crashed in my senior year of basketball when I tore my ACL, like my sixth game. So now that sports is taken from me, my escape. Yeah. I mean, that was almost as hard as, well, I mean, not quite, but it was, it was up there in terms of just processing that, just kind of the emotional pain. <laughs> yeah. You know why? Why? Because you're about to have to deal with the other emotional pain that yes. you've been suppressing so much. Yes. Yeah. And I wasn't ready for that. Started hanging out with some different people. I got exposed to some alcohol. Hmm. I was getting pain pills from my doctor for my knee and I was taking that. I still had this kind of ego from sports that wasn't healthy. And so I wasn't treating people right. I wasn't getting any healthy relationships. I was having bad relationships with women, girls that I would date or whatever. I just, I had a, a bad connection with that. I think that, again, it was a lot of stuff that I was suppressing. God, yeah. No yeah. Safety or security or feeling. Yeah. Having to have an adult relationship or a mature one after any of those experiences, you're on high from your sports and then dealing with your mother, of course, and then the, the injury, right? your new friend, uh, alcohol. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's where it kind of started. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, Montana is kind of binge drinking yeah. country. To, I've done that myself. Yeah. yeah. Have you? Sure. Oh yeah. 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 yeah Good you times. Dabbled. Dabbled. <laughs> dabbled a little bit yeah. in Montana. Those boys are, it's some real deal. Right there it is. There. Yeah. It is. So it just, it just wasn't healthy at all. And I started to kind of just become very destructive. Hmm. Um, I would, I would be at parties and start breaking stuff and breaking windows and, and just out of control, just really aggressive and angry. And um, I, I think just because I, I, again, I had this thing, that I was suppressing. I didn't want to, I didn't want to address. So these other outlets were ways for me to express my anger and it wasn't healthy. And I'm lucky I didn't hurt anyone or myself. Sure. It was a tough time. And the toxic stress coming out in all kinds of ways. Right. You know, alcohol is just the symptom, right? Alcohol didn't make you break windows or act destructively. Right. It just perpetuates whatever you feel is going on in your life. It really brings the things to the forefront, which can be therapeutic in a way because then you realize, Oh yeah, I've got a problem. Right. Because yeah. it doesn't go away when you quit drinking. Right. It doesn't. They're still there after <laughs> the hangover. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. They're still there. Yeah. So, mm. 
so yeah, I, I, uh, I graduated uh, high school somehow. I don't know how I did. I, I had very average grades. Um, so yeah, so in I go into my 20s and to, into college. Again, still very destructive. Also staying in Montana, my worldview was so tiny. I just, it was, all I knew was this little Montana community. I just, I just didn't even know what the world was. I was just so tunnel visioned into this small little community, which is, which can be really hard, I think. Mm. And it was for me because I just, I didn't, I didn't like the world I was in and I didn't like how small it was and disconnected and, and, and rural. And I just, I didn't know what was out there. So I think that was really kind of limiting me. And I was nowhere close to forgiveness. I wasn't close to anything close to forgiveness. I had a lot of anger still towards this guy. I always thought about, I wanted to go to his tombstone and just like spit on it and take a piss on it and just like Hmm. break it. And just, I thought that was going to help me get through it. I rationally thought that that was going to help me. You Sounds know? rational to me. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know what that would do, but yeah, it, I guess at that moment it seemed right. I was, I, just, right. I had this anger and, and, you know, I, I just, I started to realize, well, I, I need to, I just, I need to do something. I, I like, this isn't good. And I went to Seattle in the summer and I live with my brother and I end up getting a little tattoo on my back of my mom's name and an angel just to kind of represent like the scar of, of her loss and just, just to recognize her, I think even more so was it to, it was to help me talk about it and to make it a little more visible. And so people might see it and ask me about it. And then I would kind of have to address it. That was kind of my plan. But uh, after I got it, my teammates would see it. I was, I was playing college basketball or my, my, my friends would see it and they would say, Oh, you know, who's, who's Kathy McDermott? What's that? I would get so anxious and, and worried. And I, I was still wasn't ready to talk about it. So I would actually lie. I would say, oh, it's my grandma. I would say, oh, uh, or if I did say it was my mom, I'd say, you know, she died of cancer. I would just lie about it to my friends. And Why do you think that is? I knew it was going to be painful and it was going to be emotional. And I just, I couldn't open it up to people because I didn't trust them into how they would react. Yeah. And I just still, I lied about it. You know, I lied about yeah. it to a lot of my close friends. Well, not only that, but maybe it would harken back to when you were in high school and feeling secluded. And then they're like, oh, shit, I don't know how to yes. react around this guy now in a party. And I, I have to watch what I have to say yeah. possibly because we all joke about stuff. Yeah. Um, that changes the dynamic for sure. Right. Especially immature minds like that. Right. And they're just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Trying to fit in. Right. <laughs> be, be accepted. Yeah. That's something that definitely would separate you from the crowd. Right. Right. And, and now, now that you mentioned the, the joke thing, this was also a period where like, where there the your mom jokes oh, were really shit. big. Yeah, right. Oh, and yeah. That was all the time. And so, like, that was just weird. That was awkward. Like, I was just oh, like, you know, shit. that was just in the locker room. That was at the cafeteria. Like, just the your mom jokes. And that was just like, every time someone would say that, I was just like. If they only knew. If they only knew. But, foot and mouth total. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't know it. They didn't sure. know what happened to me. But those type of jokes are just thrown around all the time. And, yeah, of course. You know, that was tough. That was just like, because every time I heard that, it was just kind of like another little kind of poke to the, you know, mm. to the heart. You know, looking back, I think it's it's okay to say that something sad has happened to yeah. me. I wish I would have done that, and I wish I would have been kind of coached through that. But I just that wasn't my philosophy, and that that wasn't uh, at the time I, it was the best way for me to address it. So I did hide it. Luckily, I, I I transferred schools, which was the best decision for me. It was really really good for me to get out of that community. And I mean, I, I, again, I love Helena. I love everything about that community. Sure. But I just needed something new. So. Uh, what year were you? You're a sophomore? Junior? I was a sophomore. Okay. Yeah. And so I called the basketball coach at Pacific University in Oregon, his division three school. And the coach recruited me out of high school, even though I, I still tore my ACL, but he saw some film of me on my junior year. And he invited me 
to play on the team. I moved to Forest Grove, Oregon that summer. It was kind of my new journey. I had a, a good basketball career there. I was a team captain. I started for three years. I think I told my college teammates maybe once or twice, maybe a couple of them, but I still wasn't open about it. And they, again, saw my kind of my tattoo, but they, I think they recognized it was also tough, still tough for me to talk about. It's a pretty small school still. Though. It is. It is. Yeah, it is small. Uh, I connected with a teacher for the first time in my life. I took a sports and politics class with a guy named Jules Boykoff, who I'm still friends with today. And it, it just changed my whole life. It, <laughs> Got one of those, I, huh? I did. Oh, yeah. All of those connections. It man. was, yeah. yeah. And it, I haven't, I hadn't had that before. <laughs> I didn't have it in high school. And this guy, he was talking sports and how it had relations to power dynamics in the world. And it just blew my mind. Did he know about your mother? He didn't. Uh, he still doesn't. Um, wow. Yeah, he still doesn't. He's still teaching. He's still teaching. I kind of have a list of people I want to tell them my story now. Sure. And he's he's right up there on the list. We could send him this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I definitely will. I'm definitely going to. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's he's written a bunch of books. He's just a big time scholar now. But he, I disconnected with him. I was in a new place where people didn't know my trauma story, which was really refreshing. People, you know, I didn't feel like people were whispering behind my back or like, you know, hey, you know, don't ask him about his his mother or anything. Where I felt like that was always the case in Montana. Yeah. So I kind of did feel free and, I, and I, I was able to bond with this professor and I graduated from Pacific again, not really addressing any of it, but I was kind of moving on and seeing the world was much bigger than Montana. Yeah. I moved to Seattle for 10 months. I was still very lost and, you know, as a lot of college grads are out of <laughs> college, right? That first year, you're like a bartender and a, yeah. some of know, my best clients. Yeah. Sales <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, you're just doing right? all these random jobs, and, you know, <laughs> waiter, you're a waiter and yeah. But then I realized I wanted to coach and teach. So I started to think, okay, how can I get into college coaching? Basketball? I, college basketball, yep. I started emailing coaches on the West Coast. There was a coach at, in the University of Laverne who knew my coach in college at Pacific, and he offered me a graduate assistant spot. So I moved to LA by myself in 2009 and started coaching, and I just loved it. I just absolutely loved these kids, the recruiting aspect. I drove, to, I remember driving to LA by myself and kind of being terrified. You know, I started taking classes. In one of these classes, it was I was getting my master's in education, and one of the classes was you had to get up and tell your story. Oh, jeez! And I was so nervous. I remember I, I got up in front of thirty people, and I just still wasn't ready. I wasn't talking about it, and they're just kind of like, "Well, this is you know, this is safe. It's, you can trust us. Just what are you struggling with?" And I tried to talk about it, and it was. I remember I just got so choked up, I couldn't even get through the presentation. Um, I was just bawling in front of all these people, and they were so supportive of me and helpful and nice, and uh, it was great. But I just emotionally and, and from a mature standpoint, I just I wasn't ready yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I still had some difficulties with kind of intimacy. I think I had some issues with trust. I've met some great women, had some nice relationships for maybe two weeks, and then I would just end it. They were getting too close and I, I didn't want to share with them what was going on with me. So it was like a pattern to where I would date someone, amazing people for, you know, one or two weeks and, and everything would be going great. Then I would just kind of end it because I just didn't trust anybody because I was still just struggling so much internally. Yeah. Um, so common though. Here you were insulating yourself from the truth to protect yourself. But what in effect what you were doing was hurting yourself yes. in the long term because, yeah. you know, when you talk about and work through things and the, if you don't, this is the way that it manifests itself right. into, into poor relationships. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's what I was. That, one of many different ways. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, you know, I had a lot of poor relationships and I wish I could go back to these, these people that I dated and just oh, be like, Hey, suck, I'm sorry. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I, 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 I still have a little guilt about that. Even maybe I just feel bad that I was hiding and I wasn't being transparent and I was just, I, I didn't trust anyone when oh, these yeah. people were open and willing to help me and, and, and willing to accept me. But I was still 
holding on and holding on and protecting and not trusting. And right. Thinking that that's the answer, that that's what's going to get you to a successful relationship. If right. you hide and you, yes. you protect yourself and insulate yourself. Yeah. That, I've been in an adult relationship for the first time for the last four years. And my, my partner and I, Jana yeah. and I have been together for 13. Yeah. Like, and, and I've had many relationships prior to that all screwed up yeah, and all because of me uh, and yeah. the shit that I was hiding right. and holding on to and not working on and suppressing. Right. Oh. That's, that's refreshing to hear that from another person. I, I don't think I've oh. ever heard anyone else say that. So it's just, it's for sure. Again, just talking to you, you just, you, you're, I don't know, you're so easy to, to trust and talk to. And oh, I appreciate that. you're one of the few people I just, you just met me, but you're one of the few people in my life that I've feel like I can just trust and open up to and, and tell my story. I'm sorry if that sounds weird. But no, not at all, man. That means a lot to me. Yeah. I, I know there's certainly definitely a connection here that's yeah. important to me. Right. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So anyways, I was, I was in Los Angeles coaching and still destructive, still binge drinking. I, I collected some buddies down there and still pretty wild. I, I tamed it down a little bit. You know, my worldview is a little bigger, but I was still struggling with a lot. Um, and one particular event was uh, just, we were out after the bars closed, we were in a neighborhood in Claremont. I don't know. I was just with some friends and I thought it would be cool to kind of show off or something, but I just decided to run on this car and <laughs> I ran on top of this car and there was a guy in the car and it was like three in the morning and it was just a parked car. Oh. This guy chased me and he chased me for like a block. And meanwhile, my friends were all back where the car was and they, they didn't really move. They, I think they were kind of hammered or something. <laughs> And so they kind of got caught because this guy called the cops and I, I ran off. Police officer called me the next morning and he knew I was a basketball coach. And he said that if, if I don't come into the police station, that he's going to contact the school, and, oh, you know, that wow. we're going to contact the head coach, all this athletic director. So that was just like a big eyebrow raiser. Like, I'm like, you know, I'm going to hurt somebody. I'm going to kill someone or I'm going to kill myself. Like I am out of control. I am mm. just crazy. Like I'm running on cars and I'm 25 years old. Just I'm, I'm losing it. Mm. And it was, it was just a big moment for me. Like I, I need to change. Something needs to happen and I need to change my behavior because this anger and aggression is, it seems like it's still out of control. You know, I, I apologize to my friends. I have one, one buddy, I think he was so upset. You know, we haven't talked for a while, but you know, um, I, I know we're still friends, but he was, he's, he's still pretty mad at me for that event. And I still kind of feel bad hmm. about it. But, um, 10 years later, 10 years later, I know, exactly. <laughs> I know it's a ripple effect. It is, it is. <laughs> so, so anyway, so a big moment for me was when I was, I was again, for the coaching and the recruiting, we had one player from Hawaii on our team and I decided that I wanted to get more players from Hawaii. I thought that was just a hot spot that no one else in California was getting. So I went out there and coached a basketball camp in Maui and I met up with a coach there who was coaching in Turkey and he liked kind of what I did at his camp and he invited me to go with him to Turkey in 2010, which was during the uh, basketball world championships. That's and, awesome. And uh, we were going to coach a camp there called Children of the World, which was the first time a basketball camp brought in players from every country in the world. Um, they brought a, a male and a female and they brought a coach to Istanbul. And there was three American coaches, me and two other coaches who kind of directed this camp. To this day, that's still probably the most impactful thing I've ever done. It was um, incredibly impactful for my, for my life, and it just showed how big the world is. And I just connected with so many of these people from New Zealand to Botswana to Chile, Mongolia, Greece, 
Norway. It showed me how big the world was, but it also I got these friends from kind of all over and it, it just gave me a kind of a global perspective. Yeah. It, it changed me forever. And now I had all these contacts all over the world with this coaching and Facebook was, was just starting to boom. And so I was using Facebook to talk with all them. And I'm just like, I think I just need to go travel. I just, I just need to go hang out, see these other coaches, sleep on some couches, just live out of my backpack. I left LA and I flew to New Zealand, stayed with one of my good friends there for a good month and a half with his family. And then I went to Australia. I was in Melbourne, Australia doing the same thing. Uh, the Turkish Basketball Federation flew me back to Turkey and I coached camps in Turkey, all over kind of rural Turkey, West Coast, East Coast of Turkey, even kind of down to Gaziantep, Turkey near the border. And I coached in Romania. While I was in Romania, I got a offer to coach professionally at a, a team there in Cluj-Napoca, which is north of Bucharest, kind of near the Hungary border. So I'm like, well, why not? Let's post up in Romania for a little bit. Let's try it out. Um, it was it was great, good experience. Stayed there for through the season, which was about seven months. And then at the end of it, one of the players there was an American. His wife was working in Rwanda in East Africa with the Peace Corps. They were working on a basketball proposal and they invited me to Rwanda. And so I'm just like, why not? Let's go to Africa. And I got a grant from the U.S. Embassy. They, they funded a lot of my stuff because they knew about our project with, with youth sports. And I got to Rwanda, and, and Rwanda was the, it was the most comfortable I have felt since my mom had passed. And I, wow. And I didn't really understand why. I don't know if it was just the culture or it was just the people, hmm. but they were just incredibly grateful and friendly, and they were massive, you know, big poverty there, but they were still so happy. You know, looking back, I felt so comfortable there because the people there were all grieving family members they just lost in the genocide in 1994, the the Rwandan genocide. 100 days of slaughter. 100 days of slaughter. Oh, geez. I saw all this griefing happening, Mm. you know, between these two tribes, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Right. The Hutus mostly killed the the Tutsis and now they were grieving and they, I would see these families come together at like restaurants or coffee shops and they would, they were like hugging and talking and trying to process it. And it just blew my mind. I'm like, that's the stuff you don't read about. And I just got chills, a little choked up. Yeah thinking about that because you can read about what had happened between the Hutus and the, and the Tutsis and 800,000 Tutsis were murdered. Yeah. Children were enslaved, yeah. kidnapped, yeah. women were raped, children were forced to bludgeon and, and murder their parents in, in front of their siblings yeah. and vice versa. Like unspeakable truths, right? just as you have an unspeakable truth. Right. And here they are coming together yeah. Yeah. In, in, to, to break bread. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing <laughs> intrinsic ability to see something greater than themselves and their history and their past. Right. Holy shit. It was beyond powerful. It was so oh powerful to me. And it, it, it showed me, I'm like, I need to forgive. I need to forgive. If, if I'm going to do anything in this life, I'm, I have to forgive this guy because that's, that's the way through it. That's how these people are getting through it. This was about 12 years after the fact, 11 years after, and I still hadn't for, I was still a lot of anger and aggression. Yeah. You know, th- that was just so impactful. And, and I stayed for about five or six months and just because I felt so comfortable there, I even started to open up a little bit. I actually kind of told some of my Rwandan friends about my, my mom and, and it was, it was so just deliberating to connect with people and talk to them. How they, how did they deal with it? You know, what are you doing? Like, like, like how, how do you get to where you're at? How do you live a normal life? Like, how do you Hmm. come back from being broken? You know, out of all the countries in the world I could have gone to just randomly, I went to Rwanda. Like, I, I don't know how or why, but 
you know, through Turkey and Romania that I met this person and they brought me to Rwanda. And and so that, that changed my life forever. Um, And and then after you told them, did they change the way they acted towards you? No, not at all. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was refreshing too. Like they, you know, it wasn't like the American response where it's like, Oh God, don't say anything or don't don't offend them. Or like, Oh geez, like, what do we say? Like, it's awkward. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, I'm I'm sorry that happened to you. And just kind of just talking to you, like, it's just like a trust and there's no judgment. And it's just, that was such a big step in my grieving process. You know? Yeah. Mark Manson wrote a book called the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Yeah. (laughs) And one of the biggest things, it's a great book. New York times bestseller people either dislike it or they, they live by it. (laughs) And I pulled out the fault fallacy chapter of it. And that was people hesitate to take responsibility for their problems because they think if they do, then they're assuming fault for their problems. But then he goes on to say that you get to choose how you react to things and how you value things and what's your response. If something happens to you, you still need to do something about it. Now it's time Now you're starting to come to realization like, all right, I got to forgive like these the <laughs> Hutus and the Tutsis. And, and that is now my responsibility, even though neither one, many of them in that situation were responsible for anything that happened. Right. Um, now they're left to deal with the aftermath. Yeah. They took responsibility, which is get together. Let's try to get past it and live the rest of our lives. Like we have to do anyway. Right. And, and, you know, Rwanda is prospering. It's, it's the fastest growing economy on mm. the continent of Africa. I mean, they have the most women in parliament. It's just, you wouldn't believe they had a genocide in 94. And I think it's, a lot of it is because of that. You know, they, they realized this was a mistake and they, they owned it. They, they came together and it's just a, a fascinating kind of just case study of, of trauma and forgiveness and then kind of prosperity, right? And I don't, not everyone is going to prosper like that, but it's an incredible story. Those who do will be successful. Yeah. Exactly. At least those who do will increase their chances of becoming successful. Yeah. Because if you didn't take responsibility for the murder of your mother, Mm -hmm. there's a really high chance you would not be successful. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was, it was a big step. I wasn't completely healed, but it was a massive step for me. Sure. Um, I knew at this point I wanted to teach sports and I wanted to be like my professor at Pacific. So I applied to the university of Georgia. I had a professor there that I knew, you know, Georgia, why not? I got to go back to the States at some point. That was like reverse culture shock and coming back to this, to this U S you know, especially in the South where I, I didn't really know much about the South, but it is very different than the Pacific Northwest. And, and Probably, it, yeah. you can't get any more. You can't, you can't. And it was, you know, it was back to this kind of individual culture and it was back yeah. to like, you're on your own to figure it out, man. And it's like, right. we're, we're not really, there was no really collective group. And so now it's kind of back to being isolated and, you know, struggling in this American culture where I felt like everyone was not really listening to each other or trying to help each other. And there's just mm. culturally diverse, but pretty culturally segregated. Yes. If, I mean, yes. Now, yes, but even then, more so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much culturally segregated. Uh, I mean, you just you see it everywhere, you know. Sure. Um, and so that was weird too because I was just, again, coming from a global kind of perspective and experience right. to this, and so, you know, and and now my trauma was kind of back, and and again, I didn't really know how to deal with it. Depression was coming in again, uh-huh. and. You know, I, I still, for some reason, I kind of started to hide my trauma again. I, I didn't really develop any close relationships for a little while there. You know, I felt just kind of less supported and connected to society. And so, again, I think I was at risk for, you know, again, for some binge drinking, for some depression. It was a tough period there for a little while until I kind of started getting into teaching and developing some friends, getting into kind of a, a group and a community there in Athens, Georgia, which I still have some great friends there, which I'm I'm really just fortunate to have them. So. 
Um, I did get through it, but I still, again, was, was hiding it. I think it was affecting my teaching. I think I was a pretty irritable dude. When you can't live your truth, you can't live who you are, it really messes with you. And it'll come out in teaching. It'll come out in work. I didn't enjoy it. I would get really anxious before class. I would get really anxious before public speaking. And a lot of it just because, again, I, I was just bearing this my story. Again, I want to recognize the music for YRF, song called Rescue by The Movement. I got to meet Josh, Jason, Gary, and keyboard guy Matt last week, and what a bunch of phenomenal dudes, extremely humble and gracious with their time. I really appreciated getting to know them personally. Um, please follow them at The Movement Vibe on Instagram and then themovementvibe.com is our website. If they're playing a concert near you, do not hesitate to go see them. It's incredibly uplifting and you won't regret it. So thanks, guys. Wonderful to meet you. Let's cross paths again. I was looking for a way to release my pain. Right. yeah. And one more thing I want to talk about too, and I think kind of coming back as I came to Georgia, you know, I think there's a big stigma with men asking for help and speaking about their emotions and opening up. And I really noticed that in the U.S. versus Europe and Africa where it's not like that. But I mean, it is a little bit, but not quite to the extent in America where it's really like suck it up, toughen up. Who cares? Like, sure. You got to keep going. Like, and, and so there's just a big stigma with, with men being able to share their emotions or, or get help or share their trauma stories or their struggles. You know, also like me, they were, they were hiding a lot of their stuff and they, they didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Yeah. And I think that's maybe where I got the idea to do that. You know, for some reason, men aren't, aren't really supposed to talk about their emotions. It's a strange, um, God, it's a strange dichotomy and it's a weird area to be in because right now a lot of other, a lot of other areas are getting a lot of attention, whether it's, you know, and, and rightfully so, right. Minority groups and females, yep. of yep. course, yes. like <laughs> that their time is now and it's overdue. The Me Too and the Me Too movement, yeah. right. Yeah. Of course. And gender equality yeah. and, and Black Lives Matter. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, how pivotal and kind of like an earmark in history where things have, have changed drastically, where, where I've seen and, and, and spoke to some colleagues is that the, the male perspective has fallen. We do have a sense of privilege in a way because particularly you and I, yeah. white dudes with blue eyes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know. <laughs> Take away our history or whatever happened to us as children. Right. Right. We're still white dudes in America. Yes. We don't have to deal with half that we shit. Don't. Not even close. <laughs> right? Yeah. We got to be cognizant about that. Right. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we don't have our own shit going yes. on. Yes. We don't have our own issues that we need to deal with. And an outlet for that. Right. There's a staff member and she's like, hey, uh, would you look into our male services? I feel like we're lacking within them, particularly the white male services. Because I got services for everybody else. Wow. But not the white dudes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, that's just so I don't even feel comfortable talking about it. Right. Like, haven't we had our day? Haven't we yeah. fucked things up beyond yes. belief, you know, right. for, for history? But now guys like us, I, I think it's so important to share my truth. Yeah. 
which is, I think, why we connect so well. Yeah. And that you you have a desire to share your truth too. Yeah. Now that I'm self-employed, I have my own gig, that's one of been one of the most freeing things I've been able to do is be like, this is who I am. Um, this is this is how I'm working through it yeah. and the and the steps I took to to get where I am and, and still taking right. a, a long way to go. Jed, I I've talked about it before. I get depressed. I get anxious. And where do I go? Right. Right. <laughs> I still want to do good. I want to do good by women. I want to do good by more minorities. I want to do good by LGBTQ. Yes. I want to do good by everyone. Right. All right. Right. But at first we have to do good by ourselves. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay that we have issues. It's okay. That yeah. We, yeah. And you're right. You know, we, we for kind of forget about ourselves. Hmm. And, and also kind of just owning my truth and, and owning my story and just, yeah. you know, talking to you these past few weeks, it's been just liberating, man. Like it's, it's just been oh, man. like, I'm a whole, almost a whole different person. Like oh, I swear so great to hear. Well, I'm, like, with my family, with my teaching, like I am just a free spirit. And I think if you talk to my students, they would be like, like what happened to this guy from oh. week between week one and week five, even the class last night, like I'm just connecting on so many different levels with my students and. I'm just hearing about their stories. I had a student in my class. She's a grad student. One of her students just committed suicide oh, last week. And she's she's a wreck, you know, I mean, as as, as one would be. And and she was really close with the student. Mm. And last time we were just talking and she just, just kind of crying. And she just said, you know, what, what, like, who cares about sports? Like who even, I can't even, this doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Like this, what's the importance of this? Like I just went through one of the worst weeks of my life. For the one of the first times, I, I shared my story with her a little bit. And I said, "Hey, like I, I know where you're at. Like I, I lost my mom traumatically when I was in high school, and I talked about how sports really kind of brought me joy and it, and it gave me an escape. And mm. we kind of talked about how sports can maybe help her cope through this. That was the first time I, I opened up. This was just one student. I think I'll, I'll open it up more when it's, when it's appropriate with my story to sure. open up. Well, we'll share this with them. For yeah, sure. yeah, we will. Yeah, but it, it's just been." You know, I think you hear people all the time saying, be authentic, be yourself, you know, but you just, you what does that really mean? What does it mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah. People are like, okay, that I, I really want to be kind. I really want to seem generous. So I'm going to do kind and generous things. But does that really mean that you're sharing your true story? Right. <laughs> you right. know, it's some of the most impactful interactions I've had is when I've shared the most embarrassing most shameful stuff that I've done and the stuff that's happened to me. Right. Yeah. It was liberating for me, but also I connected with somebody on a, on another level that helped them. Right. I was like, Oh, that's what it means. Right. Own the stuff that I'm carrying around. Yeah. Not to dump it on anybody. Right. But be like, this is who I am. Right. And, and what's wonderful about it is through the past seven years of, of me and my sobriety, is yeah, you get to know who your real friends are. Right. But also, like, I don't really have anything to hide. And they know everything about me, the good, the bad, and the super duper ugly. Yeah. They still love me. It's amazing. Oh. Yeah. I, I'm thankful every day. I'm certainly uh, don't want to take uh, that for granted. Yeah. It means that my friendships and, and the connections I have with people, particularly within my circle, are really important to me. Yeah. Um, because it what's keep, keeps me sober and keeps me honest. Right. And it keeps me sharing my truth. Yeah. And I think that to that point, helping other people is what this is all about. Right. Helping them, showing them you, you can make it through, showing them your shame, your sorrow, your, your guilt, your trauma, and how you were able to process it or get through it and help other people, you know, and, and that's, 
that's why I wanted to do this podcast was yeah. I wanted to help other people, kids yeah. who have lost their parents and they feel completely broken and shattered. Cause that, that to me is, is what inspires me is, mm. is, is to use it to step up in front of a hundred people and tell them what happened to me and not feel guilt or shame or judgment. Yeah. Cause that, I feel like that's, that's the way. Uh, yeah. That's the way through it. Sam Harris, uh, he's a, an author. He says, your future self inherits all the choices you make now. You're making a, a distinctive choice right now. Right. In this podcast. Right. To share your truth. Right. In 10 years, or maybe in five years, or in a month, your future self is thanking you. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're giving yourself a gift. Right. Whereas we can do the same thing with, with bad stuff we do and the mistakes that we make. Right. Had I really understood, I like when I heard Sam talk about this on a podcast, I rewound it like 10 times. I wrote it down. I memorized it. I want to get it tattooed on my arm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to remind myself because not only will my future self inherit the good, but yeah. my future self will also inherit the bad. Right. And I'm still dealing with stuff that I've done when I drank. I'm still yeah. dealing with stupid decisions I made when I was sober. Right really hurtful things yeah. thinking that, I, you know, not thinking about the future Evan and how he was going to have to deal with these implications. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, no, dude, I, I can't tell you how proud I am of you, how lucky I am that you're sharing this with me and, and my listeners in sharing your truth. Cause yeah. it's, it's, it means a, a great deal to not, to not just me. I know it means a great deal to you, but man, the people that this will, will touch will will be unbounding we 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 won't know the depths right right yeah. thank you thanks yeah. heaven yeah thank you yeah and, and you know like we said you know i'm not not completely healed right I'm, I'm not um but i'm getting there and i feel like just since i since i met you earlier this semester like and, and talking about it and, and being able to trust and, and get this off my chest like it, it feels like i just got a thousand pounds off my back that's awesome uh there's a lot of work that you did to get to sit here um, our listeners don't see the lead up, right? You and I met four times yeah, yeah, <laughs> for hours yeah. and talking about this and really just getting to know each other and then talking about ethos and our philosophy yeah. and each time stronger and stronger bond and an understanding of how important this is and how impactful that can be. Right. And um, a lot of emails back and forth mm -hmm. with a lot of emotion. Yeah from both of us. Right. Right. <laughs> We're all continually working towards something right. and bettering ourselves. Right. And that was an act of work of courage. I, there was times where we'd go back and forth. I'm like, okay, the next email he's going to send me is, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to prepare myself for that. And yeah. I would be like, okay, how am I going to respond? How am I going to, right. <laughs> I can't make him do this. Yeah. Uh, this is his choice. This is his truth. It's not mine. You're like, yep, I'm ready. I'm, I'm so ready. I was so filled with pride and, and, and joy. As traumatic and difficult as this is, uh, fulfilled me with a lot of hope. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, and, and, I, and to, to be honest with you, I mean, there was that voice in the back of my head that was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Like, hide it. You're not ready, you know, or just hide it. It's going to be too tough. Fear. He's going to judge you. The people are going to judge you. It's embarrassing. It, it's too difficult for people to understand. Right. I mean, that voice was there. My partner, my wife, Emma, she really encouraged me. She really pushed me. She knew it was good for me. She knew it was going to help other people. And she just said, well, if, if this isn't the right time, when is the right time? You know, that was kind of struck a chord with me. And I was just like, this guy's the right person to, t to share this with. This is the right platform. 
it's going to help me be a better person. It's going to help me be a better teacher. I can already feel the effects even bef- leading up to this. I was feeling just the freedom to just be myself and, awesome. and f- to let people love me. So yeah, it's 20 years now. Yeah. It was 20 years last year and it's, I'm still, still battling. You talked about forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiving the man who did this. You learned so much in Rwanda. Yeah. How are you applying that moving forward with this man? Yeah. I mean, just, just no bitterness, no anger. I'm not mad at him. It was a selfish thing he did, but who knows what happened to him? Mm. You know, who knows what his upbringing was like? I don't know that. I don't know why he did this, but I, I have to forgive him. I have to forgive him for my health, for my family. I know that I, if I kept going down this 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 road of anger and resentment, you know, wanting to almost hurt someone in his family, I'm, I remember almost feeling like that growing up. Like I, sure. I got to pay back. The biggest thing for me was just like I'm, you know, I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to die when I'm 40 if I don't forgive this guy. If I don't move on with just an open heart and open mind to people, mm. it, it's just going to consume me. It's going to kill me. I'm, I'm going to get disease or I'm going to, I'm going to get alcoholism. I'm, I'm going to get a, be a drug addict. Yeah. Um, and so it was just kind of more about my, I guess, I don't know if this sounds selfish, but it was like my personal health. It was like, this is, this is going to consume me and I have to forgive See, seeing the, the example in Rwanda, seeing these families together and crying together and hugging together and remembering each other. That's in my psyche forever. Like I'll never forget that, you know, a family that lost their their son, their son was killed by this other family, and now they're, they're sorrow, and, and they're, they're trying to come together. And reconcile. Reconcile. Mm. And it, that, to me, was just the, the most powerful thing. And, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, was, it, was, it was a lot about just how, how it was just going to consume me if I, didn't, yeah. if I didn't address it. Oh, for sure. So, Oh, man. Talk about your wife before we wrap up. She's a special lady. She is. She has got a special yep. um, perspective as well. She does. Yep. My wife is from Uganda, which is just north of Rwanda. Um, she grew up in inner city Kampala, um, which is a, a big city in East Africa, and just an unbelievably resilient, tough, caring, giving, unselfish being. Hmm. Um, she's just so important to me, and I just, I, I you know, I'm, I just feel so lucky to have her as a partner in my life. Um, she is also into sports like me. We're both sports junkies. We, we watch soccer together. We, we connect on so many levels. She's also a teacher. She teaches, um, kind of in the same area as me. She gets it, man. She just, she understands the right things to do, how to treat people, how you get through things. It's just been a great counsel to me and a great ear to listen to me as, as I'm kind of still processing all this stuff. And life in Uganda is not easy. One of the youngest populations, you know, average lifespan you're, goes to like 55 or 60. It's it's, it's a hard place mm. to live. You know, she has a whole different perspective just on life and the world and on, on community, on helping others. Yeah, I don't know if we can really conceptualize how they view life and living in happiness. People are still dying from cholera. Yes. Still dying from malaria. Yes. Like what? cholera. Right. We don't have to deal with that right. here. Like yeah. that's, what's that? Right. You know, uh, dysentery, whatever, like pirates used to die of that. We don't have to deal with that. They deal with that on a day-to-day basis. Right. The AIDS epidemic is still real over there. Right. And uh, education and understanding the implications of uh, national health care. Right. How difficult that can be. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of her research is on women too. She's very focused on women. And we connect a lot on women's liberation and women who are being battered or who are going through domestic violence. We connect on that because of my history and because of her research and what she's been through and how women are treated. 
mm. in Uganda or East Africa. So we, we're really inspired by that. And we, we really want to help that and, and shed a light on it and, and research it and talk about it and Absolutely. make it more of a discussion. Because, you know, as we talked about, a lot of these these murders and homicides are men killing women, mm. you know, uh, former husbands or estranged boyfriends, jealous individuals. Nine times out of 10, it's the man killing the wife. You know, this is an epidemic. This is a big issue. I'm, I'm one of millions of kids who have lost their mom to a domestic abuser, kids who, who are going through this. We want to help women using sports or using different outlets. You know, I hope we can continue to do some good work. You know, I think this podcast will help. Yeah. Good. So. Good. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, man. It's heavy. That was heavy, man. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank that you. means a, a, a tremendous amount. Thank you for the platform, man. I, oh, yeah. No, I, don't, I don't know how we cross paths. I am honored, right? I just just happen chance. Again, destiny. I don't know. Does that exist? But it happened. Yeah. Just as you happened to cross Rwanda. Yeah. Just as you utilize sports. Right. I mean, it all kind of works out. It right? did. It did. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks, Evan. Thanks so much. You bet. Ryan, man. Uh, thanks. Thank you so much. Your authentic truth is not only so, so appreciated, but relatable. No matter what experience or trauma someone's hiding, someone else can always take from it and gain perspective. We're all carrying the burden of our truth. Today, Ryan showed us how he took responsibility for his. Is it the key to some closure? It sounds like it to us. Um, he and I spoke off mic quite a bit, and he opened more up about Emma, his wife, her unconditional and non-judgmental community of love. She's really wrapped him in. Uh, he also talked about a sweet little two-year-old daughter and how she and his wife really saved him from the depths of depression and hopelessness. This lends itself to the podcast I did with Hazen Odell on tribes. And it really becomes clear how important a tribe is to the health and well-being of everyone in it, no matter the truth. So with that, I ask you to share this episode with anyone who has been struggling with the trauma. Thank you, everyone.